after last week, um, my wife informed me that I needed to let everybody know this. If at any point you need to get up and excuse yourself to use the restroom, I will not be offended. Okay? <laughs> um, I've heard I was long-winded. I, I felt like it was a breeze, but I've heard I was long-winded. Anyway, um, if you would, turn back in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 20, or, uh, 31. We'll look again at verses... 31 through 34. <clears throat> the message uh, this morning is going to serve as something of a postscript uh, to the message from last Sunday. We kind of, the, the, the real exposition of the passage was last week. Um, this is kind of a uh, PS um, to that sermon. So we're looking uh, particularly at this element of the New Covenant that is called God's Law. And we know from our study of covenant theology there is an aspect of the law that is universally, morally binding on all humanity at all times. There are other aspects which were delivered to ancient Israel through Moses. But in the New Covenant the law is said to be written on the heart and what, we, uh, what are we to make of this? Okay, How does the New Testament church relate to God's law? So with that, let's look at our passage. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for everything that has occurred here this morning up to this point. Thank you for the reading of Scripture, um, and not just this passage, but every passage that we've looked at. We thank you that we have your word, and that we have it in our language where we can read it. I think we sometimes take that for granted, because that's not in the typical... Uh, way that it's been for the average Christian. Uh, this is still a relatively new thing. God, thank you for that great blessing. Help us to take full advantage of it today and every day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm not going to spend much time on this first point uh, that I want to make, um, but I believe it's always necessary to establish this basic truth when we're talking about the proper use of God's law. Um, I'm very thankful that the last song that we just sang before I, or sung, whatever the correct English is, before I got up here was Jesus Paid It All. That was extremely appropriate for the comments that I'm about to make on this. Um, nothing I say here this morning should be understood as me saying in any way that keeping God's law earns entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Uh, heaven. Nothing. Okay? Uh, neither... 
just the base keeping the law in and of itself, nor faith plus works of the law justifies man. In no way, shape, or form does our keeping of the law justify us. We can look at several passages, and I'll name a few. I'm not going to read them all. Don't worry. But just to name a few, we have John chapter 3, 1 through 8, where Jesus tells Nicodemus that a man must be born again of the Holy Spirit to see the kingdom of God. And there's Romans 3, 21 through 30, where Paul shows that the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from works of the law. And of course, there's the passage that perhaps everyone here might could recite by heart at this point because of how much it's quoted, but Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I think the announcement of the new covenant that we have been considering now for two weeks is another passage that you could add to that list. God makes the covenant writes his law on the heart, and forgives sin. At every point, God is the one doing the work. Not us. Not God plus us. Just God. Um, I like, particularly, I like Galatians 5, 1 through 6, as a go-to passage to make this point. Remember, the context of the book is that uh, Judaizers had infiltrated the church, teaching that one must become a Jew by being circumcised and then believing in Jesus to go to heaven. So the formula is uh, the formula for salvation in that line of thinking is faith in Christ plus circumcision. All right. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says this, addressing that specific heresy: For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. That is a direct reference to the keeping of the Mosaic Law as a covenant of works for life. Many of you will easily now, as much as we've gone over it on Wednesdays, recall the allegory that Paul uses in Galatians 4 to show that there are two covenants which flow out of Abraham's covenant, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. This is the passage that immediately follows that allegory. So you got the allegories at the end of chapter 4. This is where chapter 5 starts. He says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So, if it's Christ plus anything, Christ is of no advantage to you. It's Christ and Christ alone. We see clearly that justification or salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. We also see what kind of faith in Christ alone justifies. It's not what James refers to as a dead faith. Rather, it is a faith working through love. 
In other words, those who are saved by faith alone do not have a faith that is alone. That kind of faith results in good works that glorify God. So, that's a preliminary qualifier for everything else that's going to follow. We are not saved by works of the law in any sense other than to say Christ kept the law for us. That's it. Alright. Now that I've made that qualifying statement. This brings us to the subject I want us to consider this morning. Since the law does not in any way justify us before God, what purpose does it serve? How are we to use the law as New Testament believers if we are to use it at all? Does the law even have any relevance for us? I think the most obvious place to start in answering these questions is to see what Jesus said about it. You would think that's the obvious starting point. I think it's the obvious starting point. In Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus actually does address this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. The Greek there is a, is a strong... Maybe it doesn't come across in English. This is a strong, like... It's not, don't, it's not simply just don't think that. It's don't even start to think that. Like, not even just quit. It just, don't even start, okay? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that passage tells us at least three things. Number one, Jesus did not, did not come to do away with the law. And since he did not come to do away with the law, it must be binding in some sense now. Number two, though we often and rightly look at Pharisees as legalists, and they were, Jesus was saying that by the traditions of man, which the Pharisees held as being on the same level as Scripture in terms of binding the conscience, the Pharisees were actually relaxing the commandments of God. They weren't making them harder, they were relaxing them, in a sense. In another sense, they were making them harder because of external uh, qualifications that were not present in the law. Their traditions gave ways of outward conformity to the law, but they did not penetrate to the real matter of the law, which was the heart. So even if they kept the law in an external sense, they did not truly keep it because it was not motivated by love for God and neighbor, as we will see shortly. Think about the rich young ruler. Jesus goes through all of the commandments. He asks him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus goes through the second table of the law with him. Oh, I have kept these things from my youth. Really? Well, then forsake your real God, your wealth, and follow me. Oh, he went away sad. 
showing that even if he did have external conformity, it didn't penetrate through the heart, and he was in no way a true lawkeeper. The third thing is that Jesus says this sort of outward conformity to the law is not enough. Your righteousness must exceed the mere outward conformity of the scribes and the Pharisees. But of course, none of us have such a righteousness by perfectly keeping the law ourselves. So, this should naturally drive us to Christ, who is himself our righteousness through faith. However, the main thing I'm wanting you to see here is that the mission of Christ is not contrary to the law. In fact, that's what the law is about. Consider another passage. I made mention of Paul's argument for righteousness apart from works of the law in Romans 3, 21-30. After making the argument for salvation by faith alone in that passage, Paul anticipates the objection of his detractors in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? They were accusing Paul of being an antinomian. I can't remember who I heard say this, but I, I know sometime I've heard a preacher say, if you're not being accused by somebody of being an antinomian, you're probably not presenting the gospel right. This man was not an antinomian either, by the way. Paul was accused of it. Apparently, Jesus was addressing some sort of accusation for it because he says, do not begin to believe that I've come to overthrow the law. Why would he say that if there wasn't a reason for him to say that, right? So, what's Paul's answer to this? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Justification by faith upholds the law. It doesn't do away with the law. Consider another example. Oftentimes we hear antinomian types say things like this. The law of God does not matter now because we're not under law. We're under grace. Heard that before? And there's a sense in which they're right. In a sense. The language of not under law but under grace is actually taken from Romans 6.14. It's scriptural language. But consider the context of that passage, which Michael just read. Michael read that whole chapter. Consider that context, which is showing that as regenerate followers of Christ, we should consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The context is Paul's statement, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Far from affirming the antinomian idea that the law of God is irrelevant to the New Testament believer, the passage from which that language is taken, we are not under law but under grace, is actually intended to call us to law-keeping. That's the context. So, having established that the law is at least in some sense binding on us today, my intention for much of the remainder of our time this morning is kind of to follow 
Um, chapter 19 of our confession, 1689 confession, as an outline. That chapter is on the law of God. Section 1 of that chapter tells us Adam was given a law of universal obedience and a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the covenant of works. He would have earned salvation for himself and his posterity should he have kept it, but actually earned death since he did not. Section 2 says, The same law that was first written in the heart of man continued to be a perfect rule of righteousness after the fall and was delivered by God upon Mount Sinai in Ten Commandments and written in two tables. The four first containing our duty towards God and the other six our duty to man. As we consider God's law, there are two sets of three that we need to know. For the note takers, this makes your job easy. Sets of three. I'm even going to give you the numbers. Um, Sections 1 and 2 of the Confession introduce the first of these, which is the threefold division of the law. The point of this division is to say that there are three kinds of law. Specifically, three kinds of law in Scripture. Uh, these are the moral, ceremonial, and the civil, or also called the judicial. So, moral law, ceremonial law, judicial law. Okay? Sections 1 and 2 of the Confession address this first category called moral. This is the law that is summarized in the Ten Commandments. That's why we had that as our catechism this morning. Jesus further summarizes this law um, just prior to his crucifixion. In Matthew 22, 34-40, uh, we read this. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law prophets. Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Now we summarize, and rightly, we say that the Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law. That is accurate. I will agree with that statement. But, Jesus' response is to quote, not from the Ten Commandments, but from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. This is part of the judicial law. Interesting. He says the entirety of the law hangs on these two commandments in the judicial law. Take what Jesus says here and consider it for a moment. Is God's law binding on the conscience of man today? Believer and unbeliever? Should we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind? Yes. Should we love our neighbor as ourselves? Yes. 
Jesus said the entire law hangs on those two. Therefore, the law must be binding today because that's what the whole law is about. We'll get to this more in a moment, but when we consider the uh, the next set of three, but I think I think we should just think about this for a moment. Jesus tells us we are to love God and neighbor. God's law tells us how we do that. See, not only does the law tell us what we should do, it tells us how we do it. It doesn't just tell us that we should love. It defines what love is and how we put that into practice. God's law is the revelation of His holy and loving character. Therefore, the Scripture says in one place, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And in another place, it simply says, Love is the fulfilling of the law. And that's from the New Testament. Section 3 of the, uh, of the uh, Confession says, <clears throat> Besides this law, commonly called moral, God was pleased to give, uh, give to the people of Israel ceremonial laws containing several typical ordinances, partly of worship, prefigured in Christ, His graces, actions, sufferings, and benefits, and partly holding forth divers instructions of moral duties, all of which ceremonial laws being appointed by the time of Reformation, what it means there by Reformation is the establishment of the New Covenant, because once the New Covenant comes, the old is taken away, right? Uh, are, by Jesus Christ, the true Messiah and only lawgiver who was furnished with power from the Father for that end, abrogated and taken away. So, at least in an outward sense, the ceremonial law is abrogated and taken away by Christ. In other words, the ceremonial aspects of the law were intended to be temporary, typological measures that pointed forward to Christ. That was their whole purpose. Scripture says the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. In terms of outward conformity, we are not obligated to keep this aspect of the law. In fact, we are obligated not to keep things such as the sacrificial aspect. We do not offer the blood of goats and bulls today. Why not? First, it is because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So there's that. But even more importantly, Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, which has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. As it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So you see, to continue sacrificing the blood of bulls and goats would be an affront to the perfect once-for-all sacrifice of Christ. It's essentially saying that Christ's sacrifice is not enough. 
We have to add our own. But if we add anything to Christ, Christ is of no advantage to us, right? So no, we, we don't do this anymore. It is necessary that we don't do this anymore. God forbid that we should do such a thing. This is why the confession says that Christ has abrogated and taken away such elements of the law. However, as is often the case when you're talking about theology, there is still nuance to the ceremonial law because that's the outward sense. There is a sense in which we still do keep this aspect of the law. While we do not participate in the shadowy external element of the ceremonial law, we still keep it in that we partake of the inward substance. For example, we are not under obligation to keep physical circumcision because those in Christ have been circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Likewise, we are under no obligation to keep the Passover feast in the New Covenant. The reason for this is that Christ is our Passover lamb. Again, we do not offer the blood of bulls and goats because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice for sins. We do not need to build a temple because Jesus is our temple. Remember one of the things that he got in so much trouble with the Pharisees over was when he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course they did not understand what he meant by that, but uh, scripture makes it plain for us that he was referring to the temple of his body. R.C. Sproul says this, Christ is the temple, and all men are commanded to come to him in order to worship and serve the one true God. And then there's another sense in which we, the church, are said to be a holy temple, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And I could go on and on, but I think you get the idea. The external shadowy element of the ceremonial law has in fact been taken away by Christ, but the substance to which it points, that being Christ himself, remains. Section 4 in chapter 19 of the Confession says, To them also he gave sundry judicial laws, which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. In other words, the civil code given to ancient Israel through Moses is no longer binding as such. It was given to a particular nation at a particular time for a particular purpose. The nation being destroyed the time being no more, and the purpose being fulfilled, the civil code of ancient Israel as such has expired. However, again with the nuance, that does not mean the judicial laws contained therein are of no use for us today. The general equity or the base principles, that, that's, the general equity is a legal term basically saying what's the, what's the matter here, What's, What are we actually thinking about here? What's the base principle? So the general equity behind these laws is moral, and therefore, we've already seen, moral law is eternally binding. This is not a principle that the Puritans invented. 
This is how the New Testament writers use the judicial law. Remember, the two great commandments given by Christ were not taken from the Ten Commandments. They were quoted from two different places in the judicial law. Now let's consider a few examples of how we apply the general equity of Old Testament judicial law. First, in Deuteronomy 22.8, we read this. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof, that you may not bring guilt of blood upon your house, if anyone should fall from it. Does this mean that we should all go home and build parapets around the roofs of our houses if we don't already have them? No. That is not what it means. The general equity of the law is contained in the purpose that is given within it, that you may not bring guilt of blood upon your house. This points us back to the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. The idea is that you build your house in such a way that it protects and promotes life instead of endangering it. This law was given long before there was such a thing as air conditioning. Thank God for air conditioning. But they didn't have it, okay? So it was common for them to go up on the roof and sometimes even sleep on the roof because it was cooler up there. The parapet would have been a safety measure to prevent anyone from falling. So unless you're, you know, hanging out, entertaining guests on your roof, you don't have to build a parapet. But maybe a modern equivalent that would be applicable would be putting a railing on the steps in your house. Or maybe putting a fence around the pool at your house so that maybe young children don't fall in it and drown. The idea is that we're protecting life. So there is a moral principle, the general equity, that is brought forward and is still binding. Another example is found in Deuteronomy 25.4. There we read, You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Now, a rigid bringing forward of this law would not have much relevance for the majority of a non-agrarian society like ours. Most of us, realize not all, but most of us do not have need of an ox. But, watch how the general equity is applied in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18 says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. That does not mean, the general equity is not that your pastors are ox, or oxen. Okay, that's The general equity, the, the principle behind the thing, is you pay someone for their labor, or stated another way, you shall not steal. So there's a moral principle behind that, right? That's what is brought forward. Hopefully you get the idea by now. The confession explains the general equity is of moral use, and this is actually, that moral use language is actually specific to our confession. That's not what Westminster says. It's of moral use which means it is rooted in the moral law. 
the judicial law of the Old Testament is simply case law that is rooted in the principle behind the moral law. Or stated differently, the Old Testament judicial law was how the moral law was put into practice on a case-by-case basis in ancient Israel. Since the moral law that was at the root of the judicial law is still binding today, the general equity of that judicial law continues to be binding as well. So, while we are not ancient Israel and we are not bound by their judicial laws as such, the moral principles behind those laws are still binding and therefore it is of use to us today. It's not a waste to read Leviticus. That's there for us. That's what Scripture says. That's what the New Testament says. The things that are written are there for us. Before I move on to this next part, I want to give you one final example that kind of tries to bring all this together. Um, I I want you to see, one, that it is brought all together, and two, that while it may sound really easy, we have this threefold division of the law, and we got this type of law, and that type of law, and and another type of law, not always that clear cut. Um, In Exodus 28 through 11, we're given the fourth of the Ten Commandments. Okay? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it uh, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What do you do with that one? This commandment is actually one of the Ten Commandments that we're saying summarizes the moral law, which we have already seen is an eternally binding law. In fact, the ground of it is shown to be the pattern God established within creation itself. Six days God created, and on the seventh day He rested. He made it holy. He made it a holy Sabbath. Sabbath does not mean seventh. It means rest. Here we are this morning, keeping the Sabbath holy right now. I mean, we all know it's binding. Here we are. But the commandment also says the seventh day is to be kept holy as a Sabbath, Here we are on the first day doing this. Are we violating the commandment by doing this on the first day versus the seventh day? No, we're not. How so? Because the moral aspect of the law is that the Sabbath must be kept holy. That's the moral, eternally binding aspect. The Sabbath is to be kept holy. That it would be kept on the seventh day is a ceremonial aspect of this law. This was changed by the death and resurrection of Christ such that we keep the Christian Sabbath on the day of Jesus' resurrection. He was raised on the first day of the week. Chapter 22 of the Confession explains it this way. As it is the law of nature that in general a proportion of time by God's appointment be set apart for the worship of God, so by His word and a positive moral and perpetual commandment binding all men in all ages, He hath particularly appointed one day in seven for a Sabbath 
to be kept holy unto him. So God appointed the day which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week and from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week which is called the Lord's Day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath, the observation of the last day of the week being abolished. The ceremonial outward aspect has passed away. But that is not all. Exodus 35.2 adds a judicial penalty to this law. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Do we put people to death today for skipping church? Um, I must be honest with you. Actually, there is an example in the Torah of where somebody actually was put to death for doing work on the Sabbath. But I think we all know only the general equity of the law would come forward now. We don't put people to death for skipping church. Um, however, we can put them out of the church for skipping church if it becomes a consistent thing. The general equity does come forward. You are to keep the Sabbath holy. And penalties for not keeping that come forward at least for those who are part of the covenant. Church discipline. So, while we don't put people to death, the principle is still binding. And so here we have one law, one law that has moral, ceremonial, and judicial aspects to it. See, it's not always clear cut. But that's the threefold division that tells us what kinds of law there are and what ways each kind of law continues to be binding today. So now that we know what the law is, let's turn to the second three that I told you we need to know about. And that would be the threefold use of the law. We know what it is, so how do we use it? Knowing what it is doesn't really do a whole lot of good if we don't know how to use it. The three uses of the law are usually put this way, if you're going to put a name on them. You have the pedagogical use. Just like that word, it's fun to say, pedagogical. It just means instruction, teaching. Pedagogical use. Again, the civil use. And then the normative use. I'm not sure myself, I'm not sure why they were given in this order. They're usually actually listed in this order. Apparently the order has something to do with it. I haven't figured that out yet. I also haven't figured out why this order, because to me it would have made more sense to put the first and the third together, and you'll see why in a second. Um, I think the best way I've heard the first view of the law described is that it acts like a mirror, which shows us our sinfulness. This use of the law is meant to reveal our sin. This is a pedagogical use. It reveals our sin and the complete futility of our efforts to earn justification by means of law-keeping. Because when the mirror is held up, all we see is our ugly sin. <coughs> Therefore, this use of the law 
is intended to drive us to Christ for salvation. So, I should have brought the whiteboard out here, but it slipped my mind. I'm sorry. So just picture this in your head, okay? We have up here at the top, okay? Pedagogical use line going down, okay? Say law, there's a line coming down from the law, pedagogical use, and it points us to Christ. Christ is at the bottom here. It's law down to Christ, okay? The third, or the normative use of the law, is that it serves as what the confession calls a rule of life. This refers back to the concept announced by Jeremiah that in the New Covenant, the law is written on the heart. Once we experience the new birth and have a new heart of flesh that replaces the old heart of stone, it is our delight to obey God's law. As I said last week, the law is not Earth is now written on our hearts or it's now at the center of our affections. That is why for many of the great passages upholding the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, there is a following passage. It may just be one verse, maybe several verses, but there's a following passage that explains that given the new life we have in Christ, we must do good works, which are another way of saying we perform the law. For example, we read Ephesians, we already read Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 earlier. Very clearly, justification, salvation is not through the works of the law. It is by faith, which is itself a gift of God, lest any man should boast. But then the very next verse, verse 10, explains the purpose for this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. Again, God's the one working. Where God the Father's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. This upholds that salvation is not by works of the law, but God-given faith in Jesus Christ, because can you create yourself in Christ Jesus? No, I can't either. You don't create yourself. That's nonsense. But then we see the purpose of this is for good works, which God prepared beforehand, we should walk in them. This is why Jesus can make a statement like, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Because keeping his commandments is how we love him. In fact, this is the great commission. We make disciples of the nations by two means. We baptize them into the triune name of God and we teach them to observe all that Christ has commanded. This is the mission of the church. The Puritan writer Samuel Bolton summarizes well the cyclical way these two uses of the law function. Remember the little diagram I'm trying to do, okay? Keep this in your mind. The law sends us to the gospel for our justification. The gospel sends us to the law to frame our way of life. In another place, he says, we cry down the law in respect of justification, but we set it up as a rule of sanctification. The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty as those who are justified. So we had law, had the pedagogical use down to Christ. Now, to Christ, we have this aspect of the law, the normative use, Back up to the law. 
So I think those two go together very well because one points to the other. Now going out of order, the second use of the law is the civil use. <clears throat> In this sense, the law is meant to restrain evil. You might see this as the law's governmental function. There are four primary spheres of governance according to Scripture. The church, the state, the family, and the individual. That's the four spheres of government. Never should these cross. If the state tries to do what the church is supposed to do, they're wrong. If the church tries to do what the state is supposed to do, we're wrong. If the state tries to do what the family is supposed to do, they're wrong, and so on and so forth. Okay? So there's four spheres of government. All right? The civil use of the law by the church is church discipline. Okay? A good example of this is the man Paul commanded should be put out of the Corinthian church for having his father's wife. Such evil and immorality should not be named among you. Put him out. Either the evil was to be purged or restrained. And in that case, it appears that both may have occurred um, because he was put out of the church for a time and some interpret a portion of 2 Corinthians, I think correctly, that he, uh, he was restored. He repented. His evil was restrained. The way this works in the family and even in the individual are similar. Parents are to discipline their children. We've been given a rod. It's not always a rod to spank with, by the way, although spanking is appropriate. Sometimes it's a rod to protect them with. But we've been given a rod to restrain the evil in the hearts of our children. Likewise, we are to discipline ourselves. I'm having an evil urge, so I should fight that. I shouldn't just, oh, okay, my sinful flesh wants to do this. I'm just go do it. No, we discipline the flesh by the Spirit, of course. We can't do this in and of ourselves. By the Spirit, of course. We discipline ourselves to try to live holy lives. How do we do this? By the law. Where this use of the law often gets hairy is with regard to the state. Because everything I just said to you made perfectly good sense, I would assume. I don't see anybody making ugly faces at me, so I assume you all agree. Um, but this is where it gets kind of complicated sometimes. Because we live in a secular democratic republic. There is an established legal precedent based on the right to freedom of religion that there is to be a separation of church and state, which unfortunately has come to be interpreted as a separation of God and state. So I'll say this now. Historically, Baptists have been the biggest promoters of the separation of church and state. In fact, it might be correct to say that Baptists are the source of that separation. You're welcome. Mm -hmm. that's, that, that's what we have inherited. Baptists have always been for the separation of church and state. And I add to that my amen. Yes, always. I just told you. Sphere sovereignty. State over here, church over here. They're not to mix. We get all kind of problems when they do. 
<clears throat> but the separation of church and state is an entirely different thing than the separation of God and state. And this we must reject. As Americans, we've been trained to believe in the Enlightenment idea that states receive their authority from the consent of the governed. Our founding documents say such things. Do they not? But the Bible says that the state receives its authority from God. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And so therefore any other authority must be received from him. Jesus is referred to as what? The king of kings and the lord of lords. In Psalm 2, the father and the son are speaking. He says, the father says to the son, and I'm, just, I'm not directly quoting this, but I'm kind of close here. Um, he says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. First of all, do we really believe Jesus is not asking for that? Second of all, it then goes on to say, kiss the son or pay homage to the son, you kings, lest he be angry with you in the way and you should perish. First of all, don't tell me that the state is not supposed to be under Christ. Scripturally speaking, yes, yes it is. Everything is under Christ. Therefore, the state is responsible for the civil enforcement of that part of God's law which touches civil matters. The root word of civil is civilization. It governs civilization. I'll give you an example. I think everybody in this room would, and if not, I pray you repent, should hold that abortion is a heinous crime that should be punishable by law. On what basis do we hold that idea? Well, the moral law of God. You shall not murder. Abortion is murder. The state is responsible for punishing murder. Or here's another one. We believe socialism to be a horrible, godless ideology. Why? Because socialism is based on covening and theft, and the moral law of God forbids both. These are matters that are extremely relevant to state government, are they not? But the moral law has something to say to that. Let's look at the primary text, at least in the New Testament, for the duty of the state. Romans 13. This is often quoted and variously interpreted, but let's look, let's look at the passage. It says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. What? There is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. No separation of God and state there. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment for... Rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. 
So what's the function of the state? To be a terror to bad conduct and to reward good. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. That's plain. The government, the state, receives its authority from God. And it is to be the servant of God for the rewarding of good and the punishment of evil. Well, how is the state to know what is good and what is evil? By the law of God. We don't determine evil by majority vote. We don't determine evil and good by executive order of the president or the declaration of the king, whatever sort of uh, arrangement there is. Congress does not get to decide what's right and wrong. No. No on all accounts. God defines what is good and what is evil by his law. And the state is responsible for enforcing that portion of God's law that touches civil matters. Again, stay in your lane. Stay in your lane. But whatever does touch civil matters, they are responsible for obeying this, for upholding this, to restrain and to punish evil and to reward the good. I want to close by summarizing all of this. I know this has been a lot of information. I tried to lay this out in a structured way so it would be easier to grasp. Um, but I'll just say this. God's law is the law of love, which binds all men at all times. For those in Christ, it is no longer a covenant of works for life, but rather a rule of life. Whereas to those who would keep it as a covenant of works, it gives the impossible task, do this and live. It gives the good news to the believer, you live in Christ, so do this. Sam Waldron says, a covenant, or as a covenant of works, the law is a strict slave master who pays only the wages of death. As a rule of life, it is a law of liberty in which the Christian delights. In Christ, we have been set free to love God and to love neighbor. It's written on the heart now. We have not only the precept, we have the ability to keep it because we're in Christ. May we love with the boldness that God desires for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your law. We thank you that you reveal to us how it is 
that we are to love you and to love our fellow image bearers. I pray that you would help us to rejoice in the freedom we have in Christ. Now we are enabled to keep this law. Not to earn salvation, but because we already have salvation. We keep it because it is our delight. We keep it because we love you. And because we love you, we want to love those who bear your image. Help us to do this, not for our own glory, but to glorify the name of the triune God. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thank you.